Hello, my name is Mari Gerard and I'm the Managing Editor for Custom Content at Sightline. Today, I am joined by Bruno Marks, Vice President, General Partner within Icons Biotech Division for the first of two podcast episodes on meeting milestones through effective biotech trial strategies. In this first part, we're going to cover clinical trial delivery challenges and some of the key trends and solutions that are being applied to tackle these issues. Bruno, thank you very much for joining me. Let's dive right into the first question, which is what are the biggest issues impacting clinical trial delivery at the moment? Hi, Mari. Good morning. And firstly, thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, this is a big topic straight away, but I I will focus on a few key areas that we can dive into in a little bit more detail. Firstly, I think we've got to recognise that the amount of clinical trials being run is only increasing. It's estimated that around 20,000 studies are being run each year by industry. I think in 2021, the numbers that I've seen is around 700 phase three clinical trials. So just the sheer number of trials is an immense volume to try and prosecute within our clinical trial infrastructure. Uh, and so that comes on to the second thing, you know, is is really where are the bottlenecks and site capacity is a, a real pressing, I guess, topic and issue that I think we should talk about a little bit more. And then lastly, and, and related to site capacity is really the access to clinical trial patients, um, patients to participate in those clinical trials. You know, there's a lot of studies looking for patients to participate and how do they get the patients that they need to drive the statistical numbers that they need for their trials. Obviously, there's a few other topics that we should probably touch upon through through this morning, including, you know, the funding for clinical trials and how that situation has changed. And that's been a big issue within the industry. Um, you know, clinical trials are expensive and ultimately most of our research is driven by private companies. Companies and, and they need to be able to make money out of the development of their drugs. So the cost of conducting these clinical trials is, is a very important piece of the puzzle. Fantastic. And what are some of the trends and solutions that are being applied to tackle those issues? Maybe diving into the first kind of issue in a little bit more detail in terms of site capacity. And fundamentally, the problem there is that we are still essentially running clinical trials to a large extent, the same way in which we ran them 30 years ago. We design a protocol to run the studies and then we identify investigators that are expert in that particular indication. Typically, we go to investigators that have conducted trials before, have got clinical research experience, and we ask them to enrol the patients for the studies. And and that last piece that I said is quite a critical part is typically we want to go back to the investigators that have proven interest and experience in running studies. And that means we're going back to the same investigators over and over again. It's estimated that it's maybe four or five thousand investigators globally that are regularly active in conducting clinical trials. Then when you think of the fact that the people who can then participate in those trials are only going to be the ones generally who live proximally to those investigators, you come up with numbers in the range of four or five percent of potentially eligible patient population actually having access to clinical trials. And that actually can vary even more widely and be even less access depending on which region of the world you live in. So that has issues both with regards to actually 
opportunity to participate in clinical trials for patients, but also the ability for companies to enroll patients into their trials and prosecute their trials. That has really only got worse probably over the last couple of years through the COVID era where we've seen a lot of turmoil. As people know, the great resignation has happened, particularly in the US, and has meant that there's been even more pressure on sites as they've seen much higher levels of things like staff turnover. And so when recently site staff were surveyed, and I've read a recent Tufts report, about 70% of site staff reckoned that clinical trials were more difficult to execute than they were five years ago. So there's a general trend of increasing difficulty to execute clinical trials, firstly through capacity. I'll come on to some of the other reasons, but let's talk about that capacity piece, first of all, in terms of how can you address that? So there are a few things that we can do. One is thinking about how can we own more of the delivery chain for the conduct of clinical trials. And so what you're seeing is a trend that is occurring, and I'd say is accelerating to some extent, of dedicated clinical research sites. What we've seen typically in the industry is sites that are essentially treatment centres, hospitals, that are then participating in clinical research. So it's kind of a second job for them. And again, that, that's really stretching their capacity. It also means that either at CROs or pharma companies who are conducting clinical trials, we're actually effectively subcontracting one of the most important elements and we don't have a lot of control over it. We are subcontracting to the investigator to find the patient. So we ask that investigator to enroll patients into the trial for us. We essentially enroll the investigators, they enroll the patients. So what we're starting to see is is that dedicated clinical research sites where their primary job and focus is on conducting clinical research with staff that are trained with that primary aim of conducting clinical research. So that's one of the things that we're seeing. Often because of the nature of those sites, they don't have all of the capabilities of, say, a big hospital. That is a solution more for chronic ambulatory conditions where people don't need to be hospitalised, don't need intensive care capabilities. So you might see this being appropriate for things like respiratory indications, dermatology indications, chronic inflammatory conditions, maybe things like diabetes. So this can really be quite impactful. We do see examples of where in our own organisation, we have invested quite heavily in our own site network, where we can see these dedicated research sites with their focus purely on research, being able to enrol subjects much more effectively, much higher numbers of subjects per site than a traditional research hospital or institute, where, like I say, the second job of that treatment centre touching maybe next on the decentralisation of trials and how that has impacted some of those challenges. Is that something that you'd be able to talk about in a bit more detail at this stage? Yeah, absolutely. As I said before, one of the big challenges in the industry is that we're really not reaching a very large proportion of the patient population. And that's because of the paradigm of enrolling research sites and then they enroll the patients. And with just that relatively small footprint of global research sites, which incidentally is also extremely heavily focused on the US and Western Europe, we're only accessing a really relatively small portion of the patient population. How can we access more of them? An answer that's become increasingly common and is floating to the surface is 
let's make it possible for patients to participate in trials without having to be as physically proximal to the actual clinician running the trial. And the way of doing that is collecting more of the patient data in their own homes, being able to deliver medication and enabling them to interact with the physician running the trial, being able to collect the data without them having to actually physically travel to the site. And that decouples this need from the patient needing to be close to the site. So that is a trend. I want to add a note of caution, though. It's something that has been talked about for some time now at least a good 10 years in the industry. It did accelerate through COVID when we saw COVID with the fact that actually a lot of investigational sites were locked down and did not want patients traveling to the site because of the risk of spreading COVID. You know, we saw almost an enforced need to kind of start adopting some of these decentralized techniques. And so many people listening to this podcast will now have experienced just in their routine care, speaking with their doctors on a video consultation or something like that. So it is becoming more familiar and more accepted. And so it's that concept that has the potential to drive greater reach and participation. So it's things like telemedicine, engaging with the patient by video conference, it's collecting the patient data by wearable devices, devices that people are also becoming more familiar with, Apple watches and things like that, that collect your heart rate, your temperature, these types of things, but also some much more sophisticated devices, collecting actual patient experience in things like e-diaries, where they will be prompted to fill them in every day to score their symptoms and how they're feeling and things like that. These are all things that are coming much more routinely into the industry and allowing us to conduct trials in a more remote way from the site. Again, it's easier to apply to chronic ambulatory conditions. It's harder to apply those to some of the more severe conditions where a physician still feels it's absolutely necessary to bring a patient in and see them firsthand or the patient is seriously enough ill that they need to be in a a hospital bed. So again, there are limitations to where this can be applied. But it certainly has a big opportunity to enable patients to access clinical trials more easily, potentially decrease the burden and make it more attractive to participate in a clinical trial. It also allows a great diversity of patient population. As I said, at the moment, the the type of people who are participating in trials is dictated by where they live close to certain sites. And that has typically resulted in trial participants being white European North Americans and significant underrepresentation of other populations. And we know that that's a problem because sometimes different genetic makeup, you respond to drugs in a different way. So there is a big push to get more representation of the true ethnic diversity of our populations in clinical trials. So this can help with that because it can help the participation of those different ethnic populations. So these are all really significant Some of the issues surrounding that is it's reckoned that innovation is typically takes companies six or more years to adopt. And and this is exactly the case with these DCTs. And the same with sites. Sites in general like the concept, but still see it sometimes as we want some of the more practical help for our patients first. We still think that that moves the needle more. Just doing things like paying for their visits to sites, good transport, concierge type activities and things like that. 
So there is a bit of an energy barrier for people to start being familiar with these new technologies and what they can really deliver and properly embracing them and then becoming really standard rather than something that's seen as a bit of an unwanted investment and a bit of a risk and a bit of a hurdle. So I think we're still at that phase in the industry where it's not a standard practice. It's still elements of it that are becoming standard, but it's not the entirely standard approach. It's quite a conservative industry and we're, we're kind of sl- relatively slow to move with these things. Excellent. Well, lots of promise nonetheless. And then what about new regions and markets? Yeah, absolutely. CROs conduct a lot of clinical trials. They conduct close on 50% of the clinical trials being conducted by industry, which represents a spend of about $50 billion a year. It's an enormous amount of money. But just the numbers on where that money is spent tells you a real story. About 22 billion of those dollars are spent on trials in the US. Just under 20 billion, about 18 billion are spent on trials in Europe. Only 2.9 billion in China, even though that's growing rapidly, but still tiny, despite the population of well over a billion people. Um, Africa, 0.3 billion dollars spent on trials, despite an African population of 1.3 billion people. So a few things that emerge out of, you know, just getting your head around that is, first of all, in terms of access to patients, we're really not going to the whole world. We're still heavily going to the US and Europe for conducting our trials. So we're missing opportunities there. We're also not serving our patients very well. We're not giving a lot of the world access to clinical trials and new medicines as quickly. So what I do expect and is starting to happen is that companies are going to, because of this competition on the existing trial sites, we are going to start seeing companies going to these other underdeveloped regions effectively from a clinical development perspective more frequently so that they can access patients to participate in trials and not least that these are going to be populations that have high demand for these medicines in the future just as we're seeing with china it's starting to be really recognized as a enormously valuable market for pharmaceutical companies and they want to develop their products and get their products approved in china the same is going to happen for africa if you look at the demographic trends in africa and economic trends in africa there is no doubt africa is going to be an immensely important economic region in the next 50 years with that population size. So I fully expect we're going to see a trend towards more clinical development in those regions. At the moment in the Middle East and North Africa, it's a tiny proportion of trials that include countries in that region. I think it's around 5%. And of those, 90%, I think, of all those trials are running Turkey and Egypt, just those two countries. So it just gives you a sense of the possibility for expansion. And some of these countries are actually seeing it as an opportunity themselves to become part of that enormous industry of conducting clinical trials. Places like Saudi Arabia, Algeria, Jordan, you know, these countries are starting to realise this is actually a real opportunity for us. So I, I do think that's going to be a significant trend over the next 50 years. Fantastic. And just rounding up some of these trends and solutions, what about things around patient ID? So bioinformatics, genetic markers, etc. Yeah, as we see increasing competition, our increasing knowledge has enabled us to create more targeted, more effective, no doubt, but more targeted and personalised medicines. What we've seen is that 
patient populations become more specific, the scientific question being addressed by a trial is becoming more specific. And one of the results of that is that protocols, clinical trial protocols have got more complex. You know, a typical phase three study, I think the average now is that it's got 26 endpoints, which has gone up almost 40% since 2015. Um, The number of countries, again, to address the competition and the challenge of finding the right patients that fit in that particular protocol criteria has again gone up about 40%. I think it's averages about 13 or 14 countries per typical phase three study. So that's one of the big challenges is that protocols and the patient population that trials are trying to address have become more specific, more detailed. There'll be more criteria for inclusion or exclusion of patients. One of the things that's helping us tackle this is more advanced tools based on that same knowledge and research to actually identify patients that fit the criteria and fit with the mechanism of action of the drug. So we have companies that are genetically profiling individuals for the particular genetic defects that that drug seeks to address, maybe uh, receptor mutations or things like that. Or, for example, it tumor types specific oncology drugs and now we're understanding the mechanism of different types of cancer much better some cancers are really issues of preventing mechanisms of cell death not working others are cell growth over proliferation and so there are different mechanisms for intervention and so it's important to actually now understand what are the mutations within a specific tumor that are causing it to be a cancer cell So we see companies like 23andMe that are heavily invested in creating these bioinformatic resource for enabling us to identify patients with the specific mutations or tumour types that align with the target population for a particular trial. What we'll see is more and more effectively mining that information and then reaching out to those patients to offer them the opportunity to participate in trials. And it, it, again, it goes hand in hand to some of the other things that we've talked about, like decentralization, because some of these patients, they could live anywhere in the world. So it does align much more with moving towards this more decentralized clinical trial approach. We need that to be able to access these relatively rare, specific patient populations. Well, thank you, Bruno, for taking the time to have this conversation today. It's been fantastic to get your insight on this very interesting topic. And thank you to our sponsor, Icon, for making the discussion possible. As a reminder for our listeners, this is the first of two parts with Bruno. So make sure you tune in for our second instalment to hear the rest of the conversation. We'll be covering biotech funding trends, crafting development strategies that align with investor priorities and the role of contract research organisations to support in the current landscape. Thank you for listening and we'll see you for part two.